and welcome back to the Thundersticks Podcast. I am your host, Ben Kreider, and today I'm going to be talking about the Thunder against the Pistons, kind of how they performed. Technically, it was a loss, but I'm kind of going to be assessing it and giving my take as why maybe it's not that bad after all. And I'm also just going to be talking about the two sophomores on the roster and Darius Baisley and Lou Dort, who did pretty good. Friday night against them. So just heading right into the game, this was game one of four on the uh, road stand that we are going up against. So we have the Pistons. I believe we play the Wizards, I think twice in the next three games, and the Pacers is kind of sandwiched in there as well. But, you know, just running through the East, the Eastern teams and running to the Detroit Pistons, who they were down a ton of players. And this was a game that I actually thought the Thunder were going to end up winning because they did not have Jeremy Grant in the lineup. Mason Plumley was out. They had Wayne Ellington out for the game. Dennis Smith Jr. was out for the game. I think even simple rotational pieces like Ronnie Magruder were out as well. So they were just completely watered down. The only guys they had were just first, second year, maybe even third year players in some cases, but they were very, very young. Like looking at their starting five, they had Killian Hayes, their lottery pick. They had Josh Jackson, Sadiq Bey, Sekou Dumbayao, and Isaiah Stewart. Those guys are all extremely young. I think out of those five, maybe Josh Jackson's the oldest. He's either 23 or 24, but that's a pretty young kind of age group you're getting at. And even when you're looking down at who they're playing, I mean, no one here was outside of their, like, fourth or fifth year. I think Jalil Okafor was probably their oldest guy on the roster. Everybody else, like Frank Jackson and Tyler Cook, these are guys that have been playing really, I mean, in some cases in the G League and in other cases hardly playing at all. So all these guys were getting a lot of time. And for Oklahoma City, I mean, they still don't have SGA. Horford's done for the year and Poku's been out, so you are a little bit drained, but you still have two of your mainstays in Lou Dort and Darius Baisley playing, so looking at it as like on paper, you'd probably give the upper hand to the Oklahoma City Thunder, and I didn't say anything yesterday, but I fully expected the Thunder to go out and win this one, but they were not able to do it, ended up losing the game 110-104, to and just breaking down how the game went down, Oklahoma City, they had a very strong start. Like, this looked like exactly what you entered expecting. Like, OKC shut the Pistons down. They only made three of their first 13 field goals. They rejected four shots in that span as well. But they were only up 10-6. to They were only going inside for their baskets. They couldn't get the three ball going. And it took them over eight minutes to finally make one in the frame. That was the thunder. And they were able to kind of rally at the very end too to garner a 32 to 25 lead but looking at how everything was on paper you'd kind of expect they'd be up a little bit larger than that especially when Detroit never really started clicking on the offensive end but you kind of take it when it came to Oklahoma City they were just attacking the rim as I mentioned they had 24 points in the paint and they end up projecting six shots in the first 12 minutes and that kind of continued moving on into the second period because they ended up just taking control after attacking over and over again. The Pistons, they were just reliant on the three ball, wasn't going in. Oklahoma City just snagged the rebound, went the other way with it, and found themselves two points. They were up 15 
in a 13-4 spurt to begin the period, and it seemed like this was going to be over. I mean, you had a play where Tony Bradley was literally orchestrating the fast break. I think he sidestepped a defender, bumped into him, and got an and one. That's kind of when you knew, okay, the Thunder got to have this one in the bag, right? But obviously, things kind of changed a little bit, and Detroit, they kind of flipped the script. Whenever they shirt up on defense and, you know, they weren't kind of falling victim to this, like, fast speed uh, transition offense that the Thunder were kind of going into, they were doing well. Like, they forced them into half court. Their shots were going in a little bit more than usual, and they scored seven consecutive points, and they ended up tightening the game down as low as four off of that 7-0 run. There were kind of shots here and there falling, but they were able to get that 7-0 run, and they looked pretty, pretty good, and just a minute later, they got it down to single digits, and Oklahoma City, they could not just go out and shoot threes. I mean, they were kind of getting tightened off of everything that was working for them earlier. They were really just restrained in terms of getting the boards and trying to work outside of that. So they were just trying to attack. And I'm talking, you give the ball to Tony Bradley and Moses Brown and let them work. If not, you're going to set a high ball screen. And whether it's Maladone, Dort, Baisley, they're just going to charge in and try to make something work. And there were guys who did very good in that aspect, you know, bumping into guys and absorbing the contact for makes. But it was running dry. And they got a couple of shots going in in the later part of the second quarter, but it was not enough. So they got it down, as I mentioned, to three, and then in the final minute, the game got tied. Pretty funny how it happened. Just a pull-up three from Sadiq Bay, right wing, banked the shot in 56-56. to In the last 30 seconds of this quarter, literally like... You could put any just clown music over it. I mean, it was not pretty basketball whatsoever. You had the ball just flying up in midair for most of the time. Like, nobody could get a good grip of the ball. Really just falling loose. You got everybody kind of dogpiling over it. And I think maybe with like a second left, someone like Ty Jerome might have snagged it. But by that point, it was too late. No shot was hoisted up. So it was 56 to 56 entering halftime. Oklahoma City on paper was doing very well like they were shooting over 50 percent Detroit was kind of lying around the 38 percent mark I believe so it would have looked like the Thunder they were going to be good to go because I mean they were shooting well and not only that they had instant offense just cooking up inside 40 points in the paint where Detroit they were a little bit more sporadic as I mentioned they had that run where they got seven in a row and they were able to kind of close it off, but they weren't able to work inside. They only had 22 points in that area, and they had to work from three. So they shot six of 18 from distance. Oklahoma City, they only shot two of 12, so that's kind of where they got their foot into the door, but it wasn't pretty for them. Only other spot outside that three was the free throw line. They shot 21 times to Oklahoma City's 11 in the first half so they had a couple of areas but just no consistency really as I mentioned that Oklahoma City really did have and to start out the third Oklahoma City wasn't comfortable at all that inside was shut down just like it was in the second quarter and because of that Detroit 
they got their first lead a minute inside of the third. The last time they were leading was 13 to 12. And they just kept building. They didn't want to just have a one point lead. They wanted to mount it higher and higher. And this is with an extremely drained lineup, as I talked about. They went on a 13 to 7 run. Excuse me, 13 to 6. So they were up seven points. And once Oklahoma City kind of found their way into the lane, Frank Jackson, the guy that they cut after a crazy preseason, just went off. He's on a two-way with Detroit, but he was feeling it. He scored eight consecutive points. OKC could not take a lead off of that. So Detroit, they got up as high as nine points, ended up shriveling down to 86 to 79 when you're going to go into entering that fourth. But that's still pretty good considering they were really out of this to begin the second quarter. Some Something that we've kind of seen the Thunder do, cough up those leads. Detroit ended up taking it, and they did it because they were doing an excellent job enforcing Oklahoma City's hand. The Thunder ended up having seven turnovers in the quarter just alone. And on the flip side, they could not stop the Detroit Pistons. They were going out in space, finding the open man. Thunder could not do that. They only had three third-quarter assists. Detroit had eight of them, and they actually had a highlight playoff of this. You had your typical kind of like fast-break offense. Killian Hayes, he ends up getting his little outlet pass, and he's surveying the floor. So he's in, you know, their opposing territory right now, and he's on like the right, the right side. And he's advancing, and he sees right in front of him Sekou Dumbayao slashing to the basket and he is also kind of on that right side but he is way far ahead like I'm talking 40 feet now cutting the basket and there are two guys right behind him I think it was Bayes and Dort might be wrong on one of those but you had two forwards two pretty fast guys kind of riding his coattails as he's trying to slip into the basket and for Killian Hayes to make off like a pass like that cleanly he not only had to move from the right side of the court to the middle, but once he got to the middle, he had to knife the pass through. The window had gotten so tight, he ended up throwing the ball kind of like a bowling ball almost. Like he ended up cranking it back. He has the ball palmed in his left hand, kind of cradling it, bringing it back, and then just like a bowling ball, launching that thing as fast as you can with a curve on it. He ended up slipping it through off the bounce. It just perfectly sliced into him, and it was two easy points. But that play on its own kind of was a kind of a statement play, if you want to ask me that. You know, those are the momentum shifters that kind of change the pace of a game. That's exactly what that did, leading into the fourth, and it grew up to double digits. Their lead grew because of Josh Jackson. He got hot. He scored five straight points, and he ended up doing it by catching Kenrich Williams up with a pump fake. He was on the right wing, went up with it. Williams bit. He just had to wait a second, had a clean look, made it, and then he went inside for a layup, and you were good to go. So they ended up claiming a pretty high lead yet again. And then Dwayne Casey made a pretty confusing decision at the time. Maybe not confusing, but just like this is a little bit too obvious. He ended up taking out the majority of the starters 
for their bench guys. I'm talking Saban Lee, Frank Jackson, Jaleel Okafor. They're out there to close the game. They hardly played before, and they weren't the reason why they were winning in the first place. So you have these guys going up against Oklahoma City's best. They had all five starters out. I think maybe they swapped Bradley in with Moses Brown, but other than that, I mean, it's really the same system going on here. And for whatever reason, Dwayne Casey wants to do this. You know, were they maybe trying to sandbag a little? Maybe. But if it was the case, it completely backfired because they were able to hang on Oklahoma City. They got close. They got the lead down to three points. But, you know, the Pistons would make one. Thunder would make one. They never really broke into that seal where they could get an advantage. And they got super close at one point as Moses Brown hit a layup to get it down to one. But the man again, Frank Jackson. He re-entered the equation. He ended up getting a miss shot, went coast to coast for a layup to bring it up to three points. And with around three minutes left, there was kind of a controversial call where Josh Jackson was going inside and he ran right into Lou Dort, called the charge. They originally called it a charge. Casey, he kind of Called the timeout, wanted to get a second look, won the challenge. So you got a five-point lead for the Detroit Pistons. And Isaiah Stewart, he hit two major daggers, just an inside shot. And then the next play, a little alley-oop. So they got up nine points with around two minutes left, maybe even a little inside the two-minute mark. And that would seem to be it. Like, that is going to end the game in any typical circumstance. But Oklahoma City was not going down without a fight. They made it hell for Utah to get their win. They were going to make it hell for Detroit as well. So the final minute 30 took about 20 minutes of TV time. It was ridiculous. You had reviews going in and out, and you had timeouts, coaching challenges, you name it. It definitely had it. And you just see the lead dwindle. Lou Dort hit a three. Next play, you'd see Isaiah Roby hit a three. It was a four-point game. But the problem was, the time was not your friend. After Roby hit his three-pointer, there was just 10.3 seconds left, and all Detroit had to do was inbound it cleanly, get their free throws, and they were set. And that's exactly what they did, and that's why they ended up winning by six points, as I mentioned, 110 to 104. With the loss, Oklahoma City is now 20-36, and they're still tied for the worst streak in the league. Sacramento, they have been just free-falling. They've lost nine in a row. I think their last game was on Thursday. And OKC, just staying on their same level. They dropped their game. So they're neck and neck right now in terms of how they've done in, um, in the recent future. But when you're talking long-term, full-scale, as I mentioned, OKC being 20-36, and 36, Sacramento's 20-36. Two and 34 so there's a bit of a gap there anyways but for Detroit they are 17 and 39 and if you want to break this down from a standings perspective and a long-term perspective this Thunder loss was a major victory in our books if we would have won this game we would have propelled ourselves up well actually not even propelled I mean, we would have fell down the lottery boards. We would have had the six best odds right now. Currently, we would have been below the Cleveland Cavaliers, who are just at half a game back from us. 
So if we were to win, we would have got a whole game advanced upwards, and um, that wouldn't have been good for us. So the loss keeps us at the number five spot. The pressure is back on the Cleveland Cavaliers, and it actually helped both ways because not only are we helping ourselves when it comes to climbing the lottery ladder, but the Detroit Pistons, who seemed like they had a total grasp of staying in the top three, are not necessarily safe anymore. They are three games behind the Houston Rockets, who now are number one in lottery odds. But the thing is, the fourth and fifth seeds are right next to them. The Orlando Magic, they're just a game back. They are four games behind number one in Oklahoma City. They're three games behind Detroit and six games behind the main prize. And when you talk about this little gap, I talked about it in yesterday's podcast, it's just like how you see some of these graphics where you're showing the top eight seeds and then the the guys in the playoff hunt. And now it'd be the seven through 10 seeds and the guys right below them. Like there is a clear distinction between one group and the group right below them. It still stands here. I still think that the top four are in their own category because there is a two game gap between Orlando and Oklahoma City, but it still could be kind of close depending on how this week shapes out and how we round out next week. But, um, you still have that huge pack of teams right behind the Thunder. You have the Cavs a half game behind. If the Kings keep losing, it's going to be dangerous. I mean, they're only two games behind us right now, and I'm not really completely sure they're going to do that amazing to end things. We still have to play them three times before the season ends, which is is wild. I don't even think we've touched them this year. So every single one of those will be pivotal. Behind them, you have the Bulls, who are eight and a half games back. So two and a half from us. The Wizards, who are also two and a half games back. And the Raptors, who also are two and a half games back. So you have a group of five different teams. Actually, scratch that. Six different teams who are all within two and a half games in the lottery standings. That is ridiculous. It's something that's never going to go away. I mean, you have a ton of these bottom 10 teams who will be matching up really a lot in the next 15 to 16. As I mentioned, we're going to have the Indiana Pacers and then you're going to have the Wizards. I think next we play the Washington Wizards, go play the Pacers and then go play the Wizards once more. But those are three games that seriously will have implications of some sorts like Indiana they are not gonna be competing for a top five pick at least like lottery standings they're not gonna be in that top five but they're not really a playoff team right now they're 12th in the lottery standings they're only 26 and 29 and they're only five and five in their last 10 so they they're not coming in with their best a game when it comes to the Wizards like, I'm very confused on just their team in general. They have two guys who seriously can be viable MVP candidates and look like them a good majority of the time in Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook, but they never are able to get the results. Like, they have a three-game winning streak, and I think when one of them can take over a game, you're going to get yourself a pretty good chance, but they just never are able to end things off. I remember in the beginning of the year, 
it was a major issue because they were dropping constant games by tiny numbers. I really haven't been, you know, researching the Wizards that much, but I'd assume it's much of the same. I don't think they're losing by double-digit points all that often when you have two players with um, that high of skill level. So, I don't know. I'd probably favor the Wizards in our two games against them. The Pacers, you just got to pray Sabonis goes off and looks impossible to defend. That's typically how Sabonis is when we match up against him anyways. So, we'll see on how those two are able to operate. Obviously, they have Karis LeVert back too. But each and every single game to cap off the year is going to have major, major just implications because it's not just going to be a one-way deal. Both teams are going to be maybe even trying to lose as wild as it is. We saw Detroit do it. They failed. Oklahoma City always gets what they want outside of a championship. But, I mean, they, they got what they needed. I think a loss here obviously sucks. I think that if you're in a nine-game losing streak, you're probably not going to be all that happy as a player. But as a fan and as someone like a Sam Presti or whatever trying to build a team, this is not the worst thing possible. I think you can kind of recoup once SGA comes back and you get your roster in full form for next year anyways. But just looking at how everybody did in the game, because I know I did go a little bit off track going into the standings, you need to talk about the two sophomores in Lou Dort and Darius Baisley. They've really picked up the slack. They didn't look all that impressive in their debut against the 76ers. They're good now. I mean, Lou Dort, he had a team high of 26 points, shot 9 of 20 from the floor and 3 of 8 from downtown. Still, the major thing with him is how he's able to get to the line. It's something that has not taken a big drop off with him. There's been certain games where he can't get any sort of love, but it's kind of a whole team thing. In a normal setting, Lou Dort is getting to the line a lot of times. Got there eight times in the game, hit five of them, and he was able to get six boards, two assists, three steals, and a block. So that two-way kind of name tag on him, it's legitimate. I think everybody knows that defensively he has been a top dog on our team and maybe even in the league. But the three has become, eh, I consider it pretty reliable, and even slashing the basket, he has been amazing at his position, and for a guy with his stature, it is a little bit of a problem for typical guys, because he does not have a orthodox build by any means, he's like 6'3", looks like he's about 240 pounds, and he will literally muscle you out of the way, if you're a typical shooting guard, there's not a chance for those lanky small forwards, you're still going to have issues on him because once he gets in front of you, it does become a serious issue trying to swat him anyways. And with the new moves, it's even bigger of a task to handle. But he's just looked nice. And I think Darius Baisley too. I think Baisley, quite frankly, has been one of the best slashers on our roster. I'd say top three. And it's because of the new moves. I talk about it when I say Baisley's doing this, Baisley's doing that. It's all coming from inside. Like, inside, he is probably one of the better guys in his draft class and one of the best young prospects in that category because the way he's able to get uphill kind of steam rolling in and then just stop on a dime with one of his spins, with one of his hops, Euro steps, it's wild. And the fact that he's damn near like six foot ten makes it kind of mind-boggling. So he's able to sidestep. 
get you off balance, and then he'll just attack. We saw him slamming the ball down. I think in the first quarter, he had two pretty thunderous jams to go along with just a 10-point period. All five of his made shots came in the paint, by the way. But that's just how he's been. I mean, when you're looking at him as a whole, the three is bad. And, I mean, he'll have the games, but this was not one of them. He shot one of 10 from distance. And there was an air ball or two kind of sprinkled into there. If you're not looking at the threes, he shot six of eight from the floor and got to the line off of two attempts, went four of four from the stripe, and even got seven rebounds to go along with it. So as a slasher, he's one of the best in the game. If he gets that three, he's a whole new player, and you're going to be hyping him up again. I mean, it has been wild, kind of the decline we've heard in Darius Baisley's name. Like, whenever he had his major season, like, stretch to begin 2021, he was good. Like, he strummed out those two games where he dropped, I think, averages of around 20 points. The value on him was higher than ever. It's not like that anymore. I think that people have kind of swept him under the rug again, and even at times have started to complain. That's not what we need to be doing with Darius Baisley. He has been very good when it comes to attacking. It's just, you know, he's not working at all three levels at kind of the clip we expected him to. As a rookie, it seemed like a no-brainer. He would make great strides from distance. Has not happened. Just wait with him. He's only 20 years old. There's been bigger kind of improvements before. There's guys entering this year's draft class that are over 20. Like, they're in the 21-22 range. Under some time, I think the shot could probably develop again because it was there last year and it has been here in tiny segments as well. When you look past kind of what Dort and Bays did in the game, a little bit more dreary. I will say Moses Brown was good though. Like when he played Isaiah Stort last time, it was a it was as close as you could get to a murder. Like he was shut down by Stort. It wasn't the case in this game. He shot five of nine for 12 points and had eight rebounds. Four of those came on the offensive glass. So I'd say it was a big, uh, big jump. Isaiah Stort, though, he was still killing it. Like I would say he probably outperformed Moses Brown. But in in comparison, Brown was good. I think Brown was great. Um, Stort only had two blocks. He had four in the last game. And I'll go into the glass in a second, but it seemed like sharing was kind of in both of their minds because they all were getting a plentiful amount of them. But um, yeah, I think Tony Bradley too was the sidekick again. I, I I don't know if there should be a change between Bradley and Brown in the starting unit. Might be worth mentioning in a podcast, but he's looked really in, like consistent. He has not been shaky at all. Moses Brown... He's been, I'd say, on the same trajectory every game. It just depends on the matchup, on how he performs. He's just right around the basket, and you know what you're getting with him every time. But he has not had the strongest touch around the basket. Tony Bradley definitely has. He shot 4 of 6 on the game, got 11 points, and had 7 rebounds to go along with 2 steals and 2 blocks. Played 23 minutes as well to get there. So I talked about him in the... The last kind of game recap is him having great hands. Still stays the same for this game. And there were a couple others who did well too. You know, not in the 
same kind of category as the four I outlined, but you had some nine point scores. You had Svi getting there, Ty Jerome was there, and so was Isaiah Roby. Teo Maladone had eight points, but it was not on great percentages by any accounts. He only shot three of 14 and one of nine from distance. He got eight rebounds, though, and had four of those coming on the offensive end to go along with three steals. I don't really know where to pinpoint his issues because he has been cold. I think the best kind of conclusion as to why he hasn't been averaging, you know, the 20 points and the 30, I think it was 33 in his career high game. It's because the new kind of changes scenery. He's not the number one guy anymore. The ball's not in his hands the majority of the game when he's stepping on the floor. He's the second and mainly third option, maybe even fourth at some times because Lou Dort's number one, Darius Baisley's number two. At times they will flip-flop, but that's the certified two. And behind them, you're looking at Moses Brown and Teo Maladon will get in the action sometimes, but he's not really the one initiating the offense as much right now. And I think it's hurting him a little bit. It's just going to kind of stay that way, I think. When Poku comes back, it's going to be more of a let's kind of figure out what's going on because we haven't seen Poku work with Bays and Dort, really. I think we got eight minutes of that in his... um in his final game before his little shoulder um, soreness started popping up, but it wasn't enough to really certify any sort of knowledge on how they would kind of coagulate and work as a team together. So when we get him in, I'm assuming Roby fizzles out back to the bench and we get a strong starting five where we can really just evaluate players and how they mesh together. But we'll see. I think when Poku comes back, you might have more of two dynamic duos when with uh, Dort and Bays and then Poku and Maladone because it's been there. And then Moses Brown is just your guy who you punch it to down low and he's going to get you two points if he's open. So he's not really the diverse character where he'll go out to the three and pop it. That's just not part of his game. We all know that and think we're all okay with it as for right now. So Thunder, that was kind of what they were doing as a group. They ended up kind of falling down when it came to their shooting. They shot in the 30% mark in um, in the second half, only went 40% on the game, and shot 7 of 9, 7 of 39, my goodness, from 3. So they only shot 18%. And from the free throw line, they shot 19 of 26. The Pistons, they were close too. They shot 42% as a group, 29% from 3, and 70% from the free throw line they shot 34 attempts though main reason why they won they just had some commanding guys for them they had the kind of combo that we could not combat and it started with josh jackson of all people the guy who was ruled as a certified bust before this year got picked up by troy weaver and now he almost dropped 30 points he had 29 points on 9 of 16 shooting went 2 of 4 from downtown but look, he had 10 free throws and hit 9 of them. He was in the zone, and you had Isaiah Stewart behind him with 15 points and 21 rebounds. I can almost guarantee that's a career high for him, and that might be a high for rookies on this season. Had 12 of them on defense, 9 of them on offense. So he was running rampant, shot 7 of 12, and even made a free throw. You also had Sadiq Bay playing third fiddle in that starting group he had 18 points on 8 of 20 shooting 
kind of had that Baisley effect where inside he was not going to be faced, but when you looked at his three-point shooting, he was a problem. Only shot two of 12, gave him the shot all day, and he got seven rebounds to kind of help out a little bit. But the main guy I want to talk about, believe it or not, is going to be Frank Jackson. You know, this was the guy that I put a lot of faith into whenever we were in the preseason he was the darling he was a top three guy and he got shorted by the franchise now in retrospect where where would he kind of fit who would we take his job from i think it's pretty obvious if we were to turn back the clock and we saw some flashes from frank jackson because we did I think we should have either cut ties with Miller or Justin Jackson. Like, maybe you could have seen, like, either of them as, like, a trade chip or something. But if we knew we were going to just waive them at the end of the year, like, as soon as we could after the trade deadline, I feel like we just wouldn't have had them. Like, they were going to be there for a small, small period of time, give us a little bit of a taste test, and then we evaluate it from there. Justin Jackson... Maybe we seriously thought he could be with our plans, but as we know now, wasn't going to work. And Miller, we just knew he wasn't going to work. 30 years old, I think he's 31 now. Kind of just there for mentorship role. But I wouldn't have minded Frank Jackson swapping out the other Jackson and Justin. But we didn't get it, and we got to see him go at full force against his former team for, uh, for the game. He ended up having 18 points off the bench, shot 5 of 10, three of six from downtown and shot five of eight from the free throw line three level scorer people when he feels it he feels it he was gonna be the flamethrower off the bench he looked so good with Teo Maladone as a corner sitter he was amazing he was the guy and we didn't even give him a shot so it's a bit frustrating talking about him but I'm just happy he's looking good I think he's on a two-way contract with the Pistons right now, so he will hit the open market unless they extend him. I feel like, you know, if he continues to play a little steadier, he should have that. I've checked up on him in the past, and he still has that tendency to have those, like, two of seven games for, um, for two straight for every time he has one of these games where he goes out for 18. But I think it's worth a shot. Just like a Jordan Clarkson, you bring him in, you play him off the bench. If he works, you keep him in. If he doesn't, it's cool. You go to your next man, and that's just it. I feel like that's how, you know, he's kind of been worked to uh, worked as even when he was with the New Orleans Pelicans. But yeah, he's a good, and he made the OKC Thunder. Really regret not picking him at least for about two hours. I don't think it cares beyond this point. Like. I don't know if Frank Jackson would have been secured, even if we kept him on a one-year deal this year. But I just wish we saw more of him because Maladon and him, they seriously were probably the best connection we saw in their, I think, three preseason games. So it is what it is. Kind of move on. You're happy for him, and you're happy for the Thunder because, hey, they actually have some pretty good lottery odds now, and they're continuing to strengthen them. But... For OKC, they're going to be playing their next game tomorrow against the Toronto Raptors. So whenever I said we were playing the Wizards, a little bit shaky on that. I got some foggy memory. Think we play. Um, think we play the Raptors, and then we go on to the two games of Washington and the one game of Indiana. So just be ready for that. 
This is going to be another heavy implication game because of the fact that Toronto is right on the doorstep right now in the three-way tie for the eighth best spot, and they're only two and a half games behind us. So, you know, if we get a win, it's going to really hurt us. You know, we're going to fall down, and then the Raptors, they're going to hopscotch their two teams, presuming that they both win their next ones. And now you're going to kind of be stuck back in the race. We want to be staying ahead of the pack. And that means when you get into these kind of battleground races where it's not just going to hurt you, but it's also going to help another side, you might not want to be winning. So I'm assuming we're going to have the same roster. We'll see what happens with Poku, Josh Hall, some of these other guys. I'll talk about it tomorrow and kind of keep you updated as to what I think heading into the game. But yeah, just be prepared for that. It's going to be a 6 p.m. start time again if you are living in Central Standard Time. If you're in Pacific, 4 p.m. start. That is wild. I don't know how you guys do it over there, but hey, you guys uh, you guys are straight up warriors for, for putting up with it. But yeah, other than that though, guys, that is going to wrap up today's episode. I thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya.